Bible to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, we are coming to an end somewhat of this minor prophet Zechariah. And with coming to the end of Zechariah, it means we're coming to the end of the minor prophets. And for some of you, you may be thinking, whew, finally, I'm, I'm glad we've been here for a long, long time. But um, I hope you found it to be really good. I want to remind you that the minor prophets are 12 small books at the end of the Old Testament. They are minor because of their size. They are not minor because of their importance or significance. They are really good and really important as we have seen. It just has to do with their size. Zechariah is one of the longer ones. It is 14 chapters, but we're now to chapter nine. When you get to chapter nine, what happens at the end of Zechariah is basically he's got two more real messages. And so today we're going to look at chapters 9 through 11, and next week we're going to look at chapters 12 through 14, and we'll be finished with Zechariah, and then we'll move into Malachi, the final book of the Old Testament. So today we're going to look at chapters 9 through 11. What we're going to see in Zechariah today is that God has a plan, and he's bringing it about. What we would learn as we're studying the Minor Prophets is that God is speaking through individuals to his people and to the people that don't believe in him. That's what a prophet is. I wanna remind you that a prophet is somebody that gets a message from God and then they go and tell it to the people. That's what the prophet does. In contrast, a priest goes in the opposite direction. A priest gets a message or, or rather a confession for forgiveness from the people and goes and tells it to God. That's what a priest does. These days, we don't need priests. I'm not a priest. These days, we don't need priests because the Bible teaches us that through Christ, who is our high priest, our ultimate high priest, our great high priest, we can go directly to God. Any one of us is a priest in Christ because you can go straight to God. You can say, dear God, in the name of Christ, I ask for your help. I ask for forgiveness. I ask for your strength. And God hears you, so you don't need a priest. So a priest takes the prayer of the people and goes and tells it to God because people can't come into the presence of God. But in Christ, you can. A prophet gets a message from God and goes and tells it to the people, all right? And so the minor prophets or the prophets in general are constantly telling the people the message or the word that God has given them. If you think about this, Think about the story of the Bible. You think about the beginning and creation. Think about the flow of how things are going. We are nearing the Old Testament. And what the message has been time and time again is that you can trust God. But yet we find his people not trusting him. And so in the midst of God saying, you can trust me, I'm the best thing for you, I'm your God, I'm your, I'm your king, those things, and yet a people not trusting him, you have God now telling them things like, well, I will punish you if you do not listen to me. And then you have them trying to declare, okay, we will listen, but then they're not able to. And what rises out of all of this story is that we need more than a help, we need more than a guide, we need a savior. And the more and more that the Bible goes on, you hear God saying, I'm sending a savior. Well, it's at this point in Zechariah where he's starting to wrap it up, where in these two messages or oracles, The first one tells us about the first coming of Christ, who is that Savior. 
And the second one tells us about the second coming of Christ that we're still waiting for, the Savior. It's an awesome ending to Zechariah. You know that in Christ's first coming, which is his advent, which we celebrate at Christmas time, when he came through the Virgin Mary and he was born and he lived, you know that it ended by him being ultimately rejected and crucified. So God coming to us, he was crucified on a cross. That in and of itself is a fascinating situation. God, he was good, he never sinned, he was, he was helpful, he was kind, he was a teacher, he was loving, he was all those things, and they didn't like that, and so they crucified him to get rid of him. Then they buried him, and three days later he came back, but then he left. But he said before he left that he's coming back, and that's what the second one is going to be about, and the Bible teaches us that when Christ comes back a second time, we'll be waiting for him that we're looking forward to him now. We can't wait for him to come and save us. And so, what we have going on here in the end of Zechariah is Zechariah presenting these things to us as a way of trusting in the plan of God. Read with me, if you will, at chapter nine, beginning in verse one. Zechariah 9, one. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. Zechariah begins this message and he's about to go now for several chapters. Zechariah begins this message reminding us One, it's against those who are against God, but even more importantly, that his eye is on everybody, that God sees. It's a comforting reminder to those that believe that God sees, God knows, God's involved, God is working. It's to be a cautious warning reminder to those who do not believe in God, disregard God, aren't looking to him or trusting in him. It's to be a warning to them. If you read it in the context of all that we have going on in Zechariah, remember, this is a time where the temple had been destroyed and God's people are now moving back into Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. There's a confidence in things are getting better, but there's a worry or a concern about will we ever be what we're supposed to be? And here we have now this first word that God has his eye on mankind, on all the tribes of Israel. I'm gonna give you three points this morning around this plan of God. The first one is that God has a salvation plan. God has a plan, a saving plan. God knows what he's doing. God can be trusted. God's bringing it about. We can trust him. God has a salvation plan. I hope you know that planning is a good thing. One of our our, our kids, our oldest son, is gonna be starting middle school. We went to an orientation this week, and when he came home from a three-hour orientation, I said, how, how was it? What'd you think? He said, well, we're getting in a new agenda. It looked pretty cool. And I thought, wow, that's exciting. One of, one of his first comments about orientation is that he's getting a planner 
right? I hope he's that organized. I hope he's excited about planning in the sixth grade and all of that. But I hope you know that, that planning is a good thing. And I would imagine that some of you all are really, really good at planning. Some of you all probably live by your, your day planner in your phone. And we know planning to be a good thing. I was reading an article this week that said, what gets calendared gets done. And therefore, what doesn't get calendared doesn't get done. Perhaps you've heard that before. Perhaps you've heard all about the people that set goals are more, likely, are more likely to achieve goals. And perhaps you've heard more and more about to-do lists. And when you write a to-do list, you're more likely to accomplish the things that are on the to-do list. And I'm hardly a motivational speaker, and I'm hardly uh, somebody who's going to tell you how to get better at life. That's not, not my thing. But you understand what I'm getting at, that planning is a good thing. I heard somebody say this one time, the world is run by busy people. You ever heard that before? That the world is run by busy people. If you need to get something done, don't ask somebody who's got a lot of free time on their plate. Ask somebody that's busy, they'll get it done. The world is run by busy people. They know how to get things done. And it's often because they have plans. If they've got five things to do today, it's no big deal to just make it six, right? They can step up and do it. They've got the plans. Well, think about this in regards to God. If planning can be seen as a good thing and the lack of planning or the disorganization or the out of control living can be seen as a bad thing, well, think about how good of a thing it is if you and I are to know that God is a planner, that God has a plan. Not just a plan, but a saving plan, a salvation plan. God has a plan to save. God is bringing about his plan. God is working right now, step by step in his plan. You ever have one of those days where like from start to finish, it is scheduled all day long? That you had something at eight, and you had something at nine, you had something at 11, and then you had a little lunch that you had to get real quick, and you had, some, you had something all day long. I had to do a funeral uh, uh, earlier this week, and the guy that I met with to work with said this to me. He said, sorry we hadn't been in touch before this. I had a 15-hour work day yesterday. I hardly had a chance to stop for work. I was going all day long, 15 straight hours. He said, to be quite honest, I'm tired and I'm not really focused right now. You ever had one of those days where you just had so much going on? And to the extent that you stuck with it or that you accomplished everything or that it all went well, you thought, great. And there's a real sense in which you start thinking that you're kind of important, you got a lot going on and that you, that you matter. Well, listen to this. There isn't a day that goes by that isn't like that for God. There isn't a minute that goes by that isn't like that for God. He's on top of every single step, every bit of it. Every second, every minute, every hour, every day. Every aspect of this world is going on in the plan of God. He's working, we can trust him, Zechariah begins this oracle with his eye is on mankind. It is especially, particularly on his people, but it is. The Bible wants us to know this, think this way. It wants us to believe it. There's sometimes when I'm doing something with my kids, maybe it's playing outside, maybe it's playing inside, maybe it's working on a puzzle, maybe it's you know playing Barbie dolls or whatever like that, something like that. And it seems like in the middle of playing that I'm kind of getting bored and they're like really enjoying it. So sometimes I'll try to like step away from it and just leave them there playing. And you think they're all into it. And about the very moment that I like step out of the room, they stop and they say, well, no, I wanted to play with you. 
And I say, well, you're doing good. You know, I need to take a break. I need to go do some things. He said, no, I want to play with you. And it reminds me that it's not that they like playing. They do like playing. But they like playing knowing that I'm there with them, that my involvement is there, that my eye is on them. The Bible wants us to understand that God's not off somewhere ignoring us. He didn't come and die on the cross to offer salvation, leave for 2,000 years, and one day he's gonna come back and show up and, and see who's interested. No. The very one that planned him dying on the cross, sent him to die on the cross, raised him from the grave, took him back to heaven, and they sit together in the throne of heaven right now, working, not just watching, working. And the Bible wants us to be comforted by this saving plan of God. Let me just read a couple really familiar scriptures to you that want us to remember and trust this. Psalm 1830, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for those who take refuge in him. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. We could go on and on with these familiar, well-known scriptures that remind us God's plan, God's ways, God's working can be trusted. We start thinking about somebody that's a planner and you find great comfort from that. Val and I made a big decision. We went on vacation this summer to New York City. If vacation is supposed to be uh, peaceful and relaxing and calm, we made the wrong choice. But if vacation is supposed to be sightseeing and running around like crazy and doing as many fun things as you can, it was wonderful. We had a good time. New York City is a tough place to go. City life is hard. But Val's brother lives there. And when we told them that they were coming, I kid you not, he sent the both of us an email, and here's what it said. Tuesday morning, here's where we're going. Tuesday afternoon, here's where we're going. Tuesday night, here's where we're going. We're gonna have about this much time to catch the subway. Wednesday morning, here's where we're going. Wednesday afternoon, here's where we're going. Wednesday evening, here's where we're going. We'll get dinner at this place. I'll make reservations. Thursday morning, here's where we're going. Thursday afternoon, here's where we're going. Thursday night, here's where we're going. It was like that, a whole email. Me and Val looked at each other and we thought, is this gonna be vacation? Can you do that with five kids? Like, that's what we were thinking. We got to the, we got to the, the end of the week, though, and we honestly said, Man, Andres, you planning it out like this made it so good for us. If I'd have tried to catch a single subway by myself, we wouldn't have made it anywhere. It's hard, it's complicated, it's confusing. You can't just go somewhere and buy tickets. You gotta order them and reserve it and do it the right way. It was so frustrating. But because they had a plan, it did us so good. I'm not asking you here today to get a plan. That's a conversation, that will be helpful, but I'm wanting you to think so much bigger than that. 
I'm wanting you to hear Zechariah nearing the end of the Old Testament say that God has an eye on mankind. I want you to remember that in the midst of God's people longing, longing for answers, you know how many times you're gonna see on Facebook or, or your social media today or on the news today, how much longer are we gonna have to deal with this? How many more shootings are we gonna have to hear about? How much more suffering? I've seen just on Twitter alone like 50 different people post, come Lord Jesus, hurry up God, fix this, end this, right? And you find yourself searching for a, for a peace. Well, let's look for peace that God has a saving plan. But in not stopping there, secondly today, I want you to hear that God's saving plan, listen to me, is incredibly centered on Jesus. I've lost you and you've lost me if you're trying to find comfort in the plan of God apart from Jesus. Zechariah 9, he goes verses one through eight speaking to those that he's against. Remember verse one, he said that he's against them. If you read one through eight, you see that he's against them. But immediately in verse nine, and I preached this verse to you on Palm Sunday several months ago. Look at Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Look at this. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This verse, as you know, is speaking of Jesus Christ coming into the world, and even more specifically, this verse is speaking of Jesus Christ riding into Jerusalem in his final days, his final week, literally seven days before his final, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey so that he could be crucified. When we preached through Luke several years ago, we saw that the whole message of the gospel is when is Christ coming? When is Christ coming? When is Christ coming? When is Christ going to the cross? When is Christ going to the cross? That the whole message of the gospels is asking, when's the Savior? When's the Savior? What's it gonna look like? What's the Savior gonna be like? Because we need one. And we remember from years ago here at First Baptist Fairdale, Luke 9:51 said, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. Because when Jesus knew that it was time to die for the sins of the world, he got focused and he went to the cross. This verse right here in Zechariah 9, to a people wondering for peace, looking for peace, searching for peace, this verse right here is letting us know that Christ is coming, that he's coming to die on the cross. It says, your king is coming to you. If you're not really sure what that means in Zechariah 9.9, in the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, some of them talk about these things and some of them talk about these things, but in not many, in not many of the Gospels do they all talk about the same thing. We well, you know what they all talk about? The triumphal entry. When Jesus rode that donkey into Jerusalem, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, talk about the triumphal entry. Matthew and John both quote this very verse, Zechariah 9.9. They are wanting us to know that the saving plan of God is fixated on Jesus Christ. Jesus dying on the cross is the key for you to understand life, the world, and the saving plan of God. Now, in this neat passage, we get a glimpse of what that's gonna be like. You've got him called a king. You've got him called righteous. 
You've got him called having salvation, meaning you cannot get salvation or understand God or understand God's plan or understand God's comfort apart from he, apart from Christ, apart from the Savior. You have him described as humble. You have him described as riding on a donkey, which is humbling in and of itself. He's not riding in on a, on a stallion. He's not, coming, he's not riding in with a sword on or carrying a sword. He's coming in humble and mounted on a donkey. And this is confusing to the people of God and until we start to understand Jesus and who he is. God's plan is incredibly centered on Jesus. John MacArthur, commenting on the triumphal entry, said, in God's perfect timing, remember the whole plan of point one? In God's perfect timing, at the precise time foreordained before eternity, from eternity, he presented himself to die. In the huge unlimited mind of God in the most detailed and complete plan of God it was his plan for Jesus Christ to die in our place for our salvation that will give you peace that brings peace the apostle Paul in Galatians chapter four says it like this but when the fullness of time had come so the ideal moment God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You look at thousands of years. You look at a ton of history. You look at wars. You look at suffering. You look at ups and downs. You look at time and time again of searching and wondering and questions and looking for answers. And here we have Coming at the end of the Old Testament, right here in the minor prophet Zechariah, you have the plan of God seen and that God's eyes are on everybody. You have the plan of God centered on Jesus with Christ coming to us. Christ entering into Jerusalem. This is the king coming. This is your king coming to you. Now, the neat thing about a plan is that a plan worked out, orchestrated, followed, can really, really result in some peace and some happiness and some joy. When a plan is thwarted or stopped or disrupted or frustrated, then it is really upsetting, even more upsetting. Perhaps you've had one of those days where you've got so many things to do, and every time you turn around, something is interrupting you, right? You have to make it to this and you get stuck by a train or you have a flat tire or you need some gas or something like that comes up and you're, you're just irritated to death because the good plan isn't able to work. Listen, listen to me. And so it is with God. I'm telling you today as a pastor, preacher, as a Christian, as a church person that your life Trying to be about God, not centered on Jesus, will be frustrating. The reason why we are seeing so many people falling out of church and just becoming these kind of weak, nominal, not really Christian, but thinking that they're Christian, the reason why there are so many of those is because they're trying to grab a few of the things of God. They're trying to grab a little bit of religious life, but their lives are not centered on Jesus. The Bible will not allow that to be true. You are either centered on Jesus and therefore understanding God, or you are frustrated or you're irritated. 
We see this going on here in Zechariah. As the Old Testament ends and Christ comes into the world and becomes a teacher, preacher, savior, this is highlighted in the realest way. God's people, the Jews, claiming to be God's people, holding God's book, don't like Jesus. And guess what you have today? A lot of people that say they know God, but don't like Jesus. There is no real relationship with God. There is no embracing of God apart from Christ. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter four, if you can find it. Acts chapter four, and I wanna read this to you in just a a few short verses. Again, this is my second point, that God's plan is incredibly centered on Jesus. You must commit yourself to Christ. You must fall in love with Christ. You must believe that that's your hope. That's where your forgiveness is found. That's what will bring purpose and peace to your life. In Acts chapter four, Paul, I mean, Peter and John are really just getting started in this Holy Spirit-empowered ministry that God has given them. They have recently healed, by the power of God, a lame person. And then we pick up at chapter four. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. So you see this? I mean, these are super religious people. These are people that live for God, talk to God all the time. At least they think. Greatly annoyed. Does everybody see that? They're greatly annoyed over these Christ followers. Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Can you imagine, listen to me, saying and thinking that you're really spiritual and you're all about God? And when people preach Jesus, it annoys you? Is that you? I know some people like that. They think they're religious. They think they know God. But when somebody starts preaching the resurrection of the dead, they get annoyed. That's what's happening here. So let's keep going. Verse three, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed in the number of the men came to about 5,000. And on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Like, y'all, these are super religious people. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this has been healed, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, look here, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. So stop right there. They are incredibly centered on Jesus. They're all about God. They know the plan of God. They believe the Bible. They are living for God. They want other people to know God. But it is an an unbelievably strong commitment centered upon Christ. Everything to do with the apostles had to do with Jesus. They said things like, 
like, I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus. That's what I want to talk about in our relationship. And so here they are confronted by all these religious people, all of these Jews who had Bibles in their hands, went to church every Sunday, but did not love Jesus. So look what comes next. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter and John find themselves living for Jesus. And they're confront, as they're living for Jesus, helping other people live for Jesus, it's literally a man on the side of the road begging who cannot walk. And all they did was help him find Jesus. And all of the religious people are now up in them, arresting them, upset with them, taking them to trial over Jesus. And their answer to them is, y'all reject Jesus, but he's the cornerstone And there is salvation in no one else. Folks, this is how we are to understand God. This is how you understand the plan of God through Jesus. It's centered on Jesus. You, if you want to be a person of God, if you want to live your life for God, if you want to have a godly life, if you want to orient your life around God, if you want to have godly aspects in your life, the real way to do that, and really the only true way to do that, is by centering on Jesus. Understand that he came. Understand why he came. Understand that your sins and your flaws are what sent him to the cross. Understand that when you turn from you and you turn from self and you embrace Jesus' death on the cross, you'll be forgiven by God. And in doing that, as God is doing that, he welcomes you into his family. It is a centering our lives on Christ that makes everything in this life, in the plan of God, make sense. Not have our lives centered on Jesus is to wonder if anything's really going to make sense. Whether it be love or whether it be hardship or whether it be suffering at the death of a loved one, whether it be the struggle in life, whether it be friendships. To center on Jesus is to help those things connect and make sense and to find their meaning. To try to navigate all of that without Christ is a wearisome task. It is circular living, it is up and down, it is inconsistent, and it does not bring with it peace that God has a plan. One of the things we like to do as a family when we can is watch Will of Fortune at seven and Jeopardy at 7.30. I hope y'all do that, it's a lot of fun. And the other night we're watching and it's Teen Jeopardy. I thought, okay, I can maybe answer some of these. And you know how like when they get to the first commercial break, Alex comes back and he goes and says, tell me something goofy about you. You know that part? And they try to come up with some funny story. Well, there's this one guy up there and it's so funny. You know, some of these guys can tell these like amazing stories and some of them are so awkward they don't have anything to say. And this guy gets up and he says, I can solve a Rubik's Cube in 4.4 seconds. Blindfolded. And Alex is like, what? He said, yeah, I mean, it's not quite the world record. There are people that can do it faster. But I can solve a Rubik's Cube in 4.4 seconds 
blindfolded. The teenager on Jeopardy told him that. And I'm sitting there thinking, have y'all ever played with a Rubik's Cube? I'm, I'm dead serious. I could play with that thing for 4.4 months. And I would never solve it, right? Well, what's the difference? Listen, he knows how it works. Alex said to him, how could you do it blindfolded? He said, uh, once you know the rhythms and the algorithms and all that, you can just do it in 4.4 seconds without looking. And did you realize that some of us may play with that thing forever and still be frustrated by it? You could seriously sit there for hours and you'd still be frustrated by it. The answer to that is not, hey, keep trying. You know, that's what your grandpa would say to you. It ain't gonna work. You keep trying with the Rubik's Cube, it ain't gonna work. Try harder, work faster, don't give up. It ain't gonna, it ain't gonna do it. Until you know how to solve it, it's gonna be frustrating. Folks, until we understand that life is about God centered on Jesus, we will be frustrated. If you are a Christian, because of your obedience or your goodness, then you don't have an answer for your wrongs. And so what you do is you ignore them. You act like they're not that big, they're not as bad as everybody else's, they're few and far between and they're really not all that bad to begin with and when you weigh the scales, you're, you're better off if you're a Christian because of your obedience and your goodness. The truth is, that's not really a Christian. That's a good person that claims to be a Christian, but it's not somebody that's gonna go to heaven. But if you're a Christian because of Jesus, and you admit here today that you know you need forgiveness, and you know that God loves you, and that's why Jesus died, and that now life's not so much about you, but it's about God and you're understanding your life now in light of God and the plan of God and the centering of Jesus Christ in the plan of God, then you understand life and you understand God. It doesn't mean you have all the answers. It doesn't mean life's gotten easy. It doesn't mean we don't still struggle and suffer and have heartache. God has a plan and God's plan is centered on Jesus. Just like all good plans, there's opposition to the plan. And this is where Zechariah is hitting it hard. Look back with me at Zechariah 9. Soon as he says in Zechariah 9, 9, your king is coming to you having salvation. So there's hope, right? The king is coming. Now they want the king he says he's coming and he has hope, but then he goes into this opposition. He's gonna have to cut off. There's gonna be, there's gonna have to be uh, uh, some separation there. He's gonna have to deal with some people and all that. Then you get into uh, uh, chapter nine, verse 14, and he says this. Then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them. They shall devour and tread down the sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. Look at this. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. 
And so God is describing a, an up and down life, a difficult life, a struggling life, a, a, a world where God's not the main thing, yet he's there in that day. He will save. The king is coming. You have all of this. And he goes into more of that. But if I'm describing this as the plan of God being fulfilled in the coming of the Savior, look what he says next in chapter 10. Jump down to verse three. My anger is hot against the shepherds. God uses this language a lot. He, said he'd, he just said he would save his flock in 916. But now he's angry with the shepherds. You know what the shepherd represents, right? Shepherd is somebody that leads sheep, cares for sheep, gives his life to the sheep, lays down his life for the sheep. This is what a shepherd is. And so now we start getting at the idea, listen to me, of not whether or not you believe in God, but to the extent that your belief in God is helping other people believe in God. I don't know what you might describe yourself as a shepherd of. Do you have siblings? Do you have little brothers and sisters? Do you have children? Do you have grandchildren? Do you have people who are underneath you or after you or behind you that in many levels are looking to God or understanding God through you? If we are not understanding God through it being centered on Jesus, then as a shepherd in the shepherd metaphor, perhaps we've blurred that. God speaks up here in the context of their day and says, he is hot against the shepherds. I will punish the leaders. What a statement. You've heard me preach this many times before, but before we're quick to get angry at the young people these days, let's think about the people that raise those young people. And before we're quick to get frustrated at institutions these days, let's think about the people that lead those institutions. Zechariah 10.3, I will punish the leaders. Not always, it's not a sweeping generalization, but on some levels, we're a product of what produced us. Some of y'all really wish you weren't UK fans, but you were raised that way. These are real ideas, right? We're, the, we're impacted by things. And to the extent that somebody has shown you that life's about Jesus, that life makes sense through God and his plan, praise the Lord for it. But here, God is speaking about opposition to his plan, opposition to his coming king. Imagine God telling us over and over and over again that he's sending a savior. And the Savior coming, born of a virgin, born to Mary, and growing up and never sinning, and preaching like nobody's ever preached before, teaching like nobody's ever teached before, healing like nobody's ever healed before, and then riding in on a donkey, just like Zechariah 9.9 said he would do. He would enter in Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Imagine that happening. And there are people lining the streets to worship him. And the majority of people are like, yeah, right, we hate that guy. Kill him. And they did. Imagine being that opposed to the plan of God, which people are. Chapter 10 goes on talking about that. You get into chapter 11 and he picks it up. God is now frustrated by it. I wanna show you something if you look at chapter 11, verse 12. He's still speaking to the shepherd. He's still speaking to the shepherds. He's still speaking about this idea that the leaders of the people of God are not faithful to the plan and saving work of God. He's still talking about it. But look at chapter 11, verse 12. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Does that sound familiar, 30 pieces of silver? 
Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. If you're familiar with the Gospels, do you remember how they got Jesus? Do you remember when Jesus was in the garden and it says an army of people with torches, lanterns, and weapons walked up? Do you remember when Jesus was in the garden and those people walked up to arrest Jesus? Do you remember who was their leader? Judas. Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot had led them to the place where Jesus was. He was praying, and Judas knew where Jesus went to pray with his disciples. When they walked up, Jesus stood up and said, who are you looking for? They said, we're looking for Jesus. They didn't even know which one was Jesus. Jesus says, I am. And then, listen, Judas walks over and betrays him with a kiss to signal to those guys, that's the one. They arrest Jesus, they take him, the rest is history. Do you know, listen to this, true story. Do you know that when Jesus was crucified, Judas Iscariot, they had given him 30 pieces of silver to betray him. Judas, Matthew 27, go back and read it later today, walks in, quoting this passage, takes the 30 pieces of silver, throws it on the floor to the potter, exactly what that says. You know what Zechariah is wanting us to see? There's a lot of opposition out there to the saving plan of God through Christ. And it's not right. And in a situation where you think Judas was right or doing his own thing or making money or making decisions, no, Judas hated it. The Bible says that Judas ran and committed suicide after that. God gives this final warning to opposing his saving plan. Look at chapter 11, verse 15. Then the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. Foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. Look at this. Woe to my worthless shepherd. Woe, or who deserts the flock? May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. And that oracle's ended. You can see next week, chapter 12, verse one, here's a new oracle. In the plan of God where he sees everything, saving plan of God, the saving plan of God that centers on Jesus Christ, your king is coming, mounted on a donkey, entering into Jerusalem, he might die for the sins of the world out of the love of God. In that wonderful plan of God to save, which describes the love and grace of God, you have a lot of opposition. You have people everywhere here described as shepherds that are leading people astray. I don't mean false teachers. I don't necessarily mean atheists. I don't mean all of that. I just mean people in general whose lives are not centered on Christ, who naturally are not helping people center their lives on Jesus. Life is about Jesus. I said at the beginning that this isn't a, a talk for you to be better with your plans, be more planned. Perhaps you're here today and you think, man, I, I do have an agenda and my calendar is full and I do do to-do lists. 
If you're like me, you've probably often thought, and I'm too busy. Sometimes I'm running around and I'm not enjoying what I've got going on. Sometimes I've got so much going on that I'm not able to do a good job in some of the things that I'm doing. And you can see there that planning, albeit good, is missing the point. And so it is for every one of our lives if we've not yet come to Christ, if we're not living with our eyes on Christ. Church, as we near the end of Zechariah and we're reminded that God's Savior came, will we embrace him? Oh, that we would find the peace of having our lives centered on what God wants our lives centered on. Oh, that we would have the peace of saying, I know God through Jesus. As we study Zechariah, and he's given these final oracles, may God comfort us. May we trust him. May not our plans, but God's plan be the very thing that gets our lives centered on him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for these minor prophets and for Zechariah. And thank you, God, that in your saving plan, you have included us that we would be focused on you. Father, we all know life to be at times up and down or frustrating. And yet, Father, we know that you give peace. Father, we ask for your help. We pray, God, that we would be able to recognize things that are, that are opposed to you and your ways, things that are opposed to your will. And we would even heal, hear, hear your opposition to false shepherds. Father, we thank you that we have seen this morning that it's centered on Christ. Help us with that. Help us, Father, to center our lives on Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.